Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, Michael Benner, host of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School here. Nice to be with you as we present in this episode an interview from another person's podcast, The Tony Durso Show. I've been a guest on Tony's show a couple of times in the last three or four years. His podcast primarily addresses interests of business people, CEOs, and entrepreneurs. And so his take on emotional intelligence, my book, Fearless Intelligence, and personal development is a little different than most of the self-help shows you probably are familiar with. I'd like to remind you as we go into this podcast of the importance of reviews on iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeart, whatever podcast player, aggregator, or podcast directory you may be using. Those reviews are really, really important, and I almost never mention it. So I thought, well, Every once in a while, put a little bug in your ear and let you know that that's the way new people find this program is through reviews. Whether you use them or not, I can tell you that research indicates that the majority of people will read the reviews before they decide whether to listen to a podcast. Same thing is true for buying books. The vast majority of people will read a few reviews before they decide whether to purchase a book. And if you haven't yet read our book, Fearless Intelligence, remember it's available both in paperback and ebook format, and you can purchase it wherever books are sold. And finally, you can schedule a free intro session, personal and private, a one on one with me by telephone or Skype, simply by going to my primary website, michaelbenner.com, and click on the button big red button with fireworks going off on it, right in the middle of the splash page. You can't miss it. MichaelBenner.com. Click the button. It'll take you to my online calendar, and you can choose a time, a day, and a date that works for you from what's available. I'll be happy to chat with you. No obligation to schedule anything further. Absolutely no charge. You'll find out what I think I can do to help you with your anxiety disorders, your career goals, your relationship problems from a non-therapeutic, rather an educational point of view. So thanks very much for tuning in today. And uh, here's the podcast with Tony Durso about fearless intelligence and the larger field, emotional intelligence. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. So great to have you on with us once again. Well, Tony, hello. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited about chatting with you today. The honor and the excitement is all mine, as I've already mentioned in the intro. You've been on our show a few times. You've, You've helped me learn so much on podcasting. I just want to thank you once again. I'm so honored. It's just exciting to have you, Michael. There's something about who you are. And now we're going to talk about Fearless Intelligence, which is an amazing book. And we're going to talk quite a bit more about that. But before we get into it, we're going to go back in the past. We're going to follow your journey to success, Michael. How did it all start for you? 
What's your backstory? Well, I have been in radio since college. And that really started with my interest in folk music and uh, Bob Dylan in the late 60s and protest music and uh, a lot of it based on my interest in any war activity. And so I learned to play guitar and I listened to folk music and started doing campus radio at Michigan State University uh, when I went to uh, went away to school. And about a year into it, I thought, this is fun. I'm really enjoying myself. And I realized that I could get a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree from Michigan State in broadcasting. It was basically in business management, broadcast management. But uh, I just wanted a degree, right? So... I changed my major from general business to broadcasting. I minored in journalism. And by my, oh, the beginning of my junior year, I began to work at a local radio station, a commercial radio station in Lansing, Michigan, as a uh, 19, 20-year-old news guy doing the city hall and state capitol beat. And one thing led to another. That was my career. I did that until I was about 40 years old. In addition to news, I did a lot of radio talk shows based on current events. And my interest in, I don't know how else to say it, Tony, my interest in the truth. Maybe it was that I'm a suspicious guy, maybe a little cynical. I always wanted to know the truth. And I thought if I was a a journalist, I would find out the truth and be able to spill the beans. But as I began to do that in the radio talk shows, I thought, no, the truth I want goes beyond the news. I don't want to just report politics and government and, and the conflict of partisanism. And it was something deeper I wanted. I wanted philosophic truth. And so... I started a business teaching uh, meditation and hypnosis. By this time, a hobby of mine, an avocation, which was hypnosis and meditation and the use of altered states to expand awareness. That became my new vocation. I gave up radio. I continued to do radio as a part-time job around my 40th birthday. But... That's the point where I began to do hypnotherapy and teach meditation skills. And I just found that people get so much smarter, particularly me, (laughs) so much more aware, so much more clarity when I managed stress and relaxed and paid attention to my breathing and quieted the jabbering of my monkey mind. And I started sharing that with people and doing it as a living and that's the rest of the story, the rest of my life. I've, that's what I've done is help people use uh, the altered states that deep relaxation promotes to expand their awareness. Michael, do you think that this quest for the truth that you started out with as that young journalist that you want the truth, is that what led to the vision and brought about 
you know, your current success that you have now in fearless intelligence? Well, one of the great wisdoms of all cultures and all times is that the prime motivator is fear. The reason we do what we do and the reason we don't do what we should do is fear. Fear is an element in everything. People will often talk about fear by any name, stress, anxiety, uh, anything, Tony, from panic and horror on one end to mere nervousness or mild apprehension is still fear. It could be the tiniest little bit of concern. You know, men will say, well, I'm not afraid. I have my concern, but I'm not afraid. Well, it's all the same thing. Stress, anxiety, fear. The way I use the term, it's it's all the same thing. And people will say, well, that really kills motivation because people think the prime mover, the prime motivator is moving toward what you love. Well, in the absence of fear, that's true. But much more powerful from the brain's point of view than moving toward what we love, what we desire, what we want, is avoiding what we don't want, this basic survival. And I think one of the most important points that we need to make here at the top of the show is that fear, Tony, has nothing at all to do with danger. I'm going to drill down a little bit more, in, actually a lot more. The rest of the show is going to be on fearless intelligence. And I already have so many questions and so much that I want to learn about. But I just want to get some of the basics and understand how you set off with this goal, with this vision. And you found that stress, fear, they're, they're similar. I kind of get that. But was this purpose here? Was this reason to help others remove fear. Why did you go down this road? Well, I had twin interests. I wanted myself to eliminate fear, stress, and anxiety in my life. And because I was increasingly successful at doing that and, and studying the research around that, I wanted to share that with other people. Uh, the people closest to me, my family, my friends, my business associates. And then, as I say, in midlife, around the age of 40, it became my vocation. It was my career. So I offered services, uh, personal development strategies is the name of the business. And I just offered these tools and techniques. I'm not a healer. It's not a uh, psychotherapeutic approach. There's no analysis of people's lives that are involved. I'm a teacher and not a therapist. And so people would often say, well, does insurance apply? And I would say, no, this is, this is not a medical thing. This is not psychotherapy. This is school. I'm an educator. I'm going to teach you to confront fear, stress, and anxiety, which I said before is not about danger. Fear is how it feels not to know something. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said famously, knowledge is the antidote to fear. So if knowledge is the antidote, then 
clearly fears about what we don't know, what we don't understand, what we're unaware of or ignorant about, what is uncertain in our lives, whether it's dangerous or not. And rarely is it dangerous. I mean, how many times has somebody said to you or someone you know, hey, what are you so worried about? Why are you stressing out? And we have to admit, I don't know. Well, that's the point. That's, <laughs> that's what fear is. It's what you don't know. So the antidote to fear, stress, anxiety, is to know and understand. And then the question is, well, to know and understand what? Well, the circumstances or situational awareness, to know the problem, to know the world around you, to have a sense of what other people are going to do. But at the core, more importantly, is to know and understand yourself. Let me just add, that's the biggest fear of all, not understanding who we are, why we're here, and what we're for. We're talking about fearless intelligence with Michael Benner. You can find him at michaelbenner.com. Benner is B-E-N-N-E-R. Or you can go direct to fearlessintelligence.com. I recommend going to Michael Benner, seeing what he's all about. And there's a button there you can click and find out more about the book, fearlessintelligence.com. Michael, let's get into your vision path here. I have a, quite a few questions, but I want to make sure I have a good understanding. You've talked about it already. You've given us some information. Let's give a good definition for fearless intelligence. Well, think of the opposite, Tony. Think of the fact that whenever we're frightened, or as I say, just nervous, or worried, or concerned, uh, to whatever degree, a little or a lot, it causes us to be less aware. We get stupid. Fear makes us stupid. We can't uh, think of performance anxiety. You study for the test, you know the answers, you know that you know the answers, but the anxiety of the performance causes you to blank out. And all of a sudden, your memory goes out the window. Or uh, the nervousness of a first date when you're a young person, or a job interview, or standing on stage as a public speaker, a singer, a dancer. Uh, it's all kinds of situations where the anxiety and the stress of a uh, performance uh, causes us to do worse, you know, uh, a stage fright. Well, we can turn stage fright into stage fever. We can turn, oh, no, into, oh, boy. We can turn the fear that degrades intelligence into the fearlessness that makes us more intelligent. So fearless intelligence is the antidote to the stupidity, if you will. I hate to be insulting, but uh, even the word ignorance is, uh, I, I don't mean we lack the capacity to understand, I'm saying we lack the information. You know, to say someone is ignorant is usually a pretty insulting thing, but there are not a lot of words for a failure to understand something. There's, there's confusion, that's a good word. There's uncertainty and there's unawareness. That's about it. But that's what stress and anxiety and fear by any name will do to you. It makes us 
makes us stupid. It makes us ignorant. It, uh, we miss opportunities. We're more likely to make mistakes. It degrades performance. So learning to manage stress, to, to mitigate and eliminate fear, to become fearless, makes us, wow, a whole lot more intelligent. That's what wisdom is, the intelligence of fearlessness. Michael, I want to drill down into this and with the fear of asking a questions again that are going to be very similar. I just want to understand, because I, I've been on stage, I fortunately, knock on wood, I don't have stage fright. But way back when, when I was, when I was younger and, and speaking in front of people, even if I knew the subject, I would get this nervousness. And you know, I find the same thing today in podcasting. I've spoken and interviewed to hundreds of people, millionaires, billionaires, well-known people. But every so often, there's someone that's very well-known or very famous or whatever, and I get just nervous. And it's so weird because I know what I can do. So why is it we kind of zone out when it's something that we already know so well? It has to do with a structure in the brain called the amygdala. It's in the reptilian or limbic brain, and it's the fight or flight center. And it's concerned, it's really hardwired. The amygdala is a small almond-shaped cluster of neurons or brain cells that is triggered by anything uncertain, unknown, or confusing because there's a potential for danger in it. The brain doesn't need to recognize the danger doesn't need to know for a fact that it's dangerous. All it needs to be is unaware of what's going to happen next. And the more that's at stake, the more likely it is to be triggered. Let me bring up an image in our minds of a bell-shaped curve. You probably remember in school being graded on the curve which means a few people got A's, a few people flunked out, and most people got C's, and somewhere in between the A and the C, there were B students and D students. But the peak of the curve was the average, the mean was the C. Stress is the same way, Tony. And so a little bit of performance anxiety is called eustress. And the prefix E-U in eustress means good. So eustress is the anticipation that helps us do a better job. We can call it excitement or enthusiasm. The, oh boy, I can't wait to get on stage. Or it's a baseball game and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm coming up to bat next. I'm in the on-deck circle. Oh, boy, I'm really excited. And so if we didn't care at all, if we were apathetic, we wouldn't do well. And so a little bit of stress, you stress, good stress, helps us perform better. But there's a point of diminishing return. Once we go past the top of that curve, too much of a good thing becomes distress. And now our performance is degraded. Now what had been excitement, oh boy, this is great, becomes dread, dismay, and uh, worry, and doubt, and brings up images of failure and 
given the way the mind works, you know, we reap what we sow. If you think you're going to fail or screw something up, you are more likely to actually bring that about. So the answer to your question has to do with understanding that bell-shaped curve and that a little bit of stress and anxiety is a great thing, helps us improve our performance, but too much will degrade the performance. And so stress management is not about eliminating stress in our lives. And Fearless Intelligence, the title of my book, is not about eliminating fear, stress, and anxiety. It's about facing it, embracing it, understanding it, since it represents what we don't understand, and moving through our fear. We shouldn't avoid what we're afraid of. We should move into it and through it and out the other side. In psychology, there's a saying, the only way out is through. I'm starting to get this in my brain here, fearless intelligence, where you confront it, you're facing it, and you're just going through it. But And, and, and that facing of it helps mitigate that nervous anxiety, even if it's something you've ever done. For example, I'm just going to make this up. You're meeting the president of the United States. You've met thousands of people, but this particular person creates this anxiety, this excitement. But if you can just come to grips with it, face it, confront it, you're less anxious about it. Did I get that right so far? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, one of the practical tools that we teach, and I did a training a few years ago, a three-year training for the Orange County, California Sheriff's Academy, where we trained all the deputies and their staff, uh, I mean, from forensics lab people to jailers to, of course, patrol officers and detectives. and uh, Everybody in the Orange County Sheriff's Department went through this course that I put together. We called it internal vigilance. And one of the things they learned to do was anticipate frightening situations and rehearse them in relaxed states with their eyes closed using guided imagery or visualization. And so if I were going to meet the president, any president, any powerful person, job interview could be, you know, as I said earlier, a first date with somebody you really, really like and you want it to go really well. I would at least once a day for four or five days before the actual meeting, take five or 10 minutes, sit down, breathe, relax, close my eyes, and imagine the meeting going exactly as I want it to go. And I might anticipate problems. What if this happens? And what if that happens? And visualize myself handling it and trying out different, you know, it's rehearsing in your mind's eye. You and I, three or four years ago, when we did one of these podcasts, you asked me about interviewing Chuck Norris back in the early 1970s. I don't know if you remember asking me about that. I remember very well. I was going to comment on that, but I'll let you bring it up. Well, the reason I brought it up now is that at that time, this was 1971 or 72, we were both kids, right? And he was in town, this was in Detroit, 
and he was promoting a kickboxing tournament in Detroit. And I asked him about Bruce Lee. And I asked him about guided imagery or visualization. And he sat bolt upright as if this was the secret of secrets. And he said, you know about this? And I said, yeah, Tim Galloway just wrote a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And he talks about visualization and guided imagery in becoming a better tennis player. And there are books about the inner game of golf. And the whole field of sports psychology has come out of this idea that you can rehearse with your eyes closed, sitting in an easy chair, and see it going perfectly, exactly as you want it to go, so that when you actually get in the situation of meeting the president or going on the first date or playing in a golf tournament or tennis game that's important to you or taking a test or a job interview or whatever, the unconscious mind goes, oh, this again. We've been doing this all week, and we've been just acing it. We're doing so well with this. Uh, here it is again. Because the unconscious does not know the difference between real or imagined. I am so glad you brought this up again, because I understand it now on a higher level. And I'm gonna, I am definitely going to use this when I run into situations that that I, I think could make me a little bit uneasy or anxious or something, you know, I meet, I meet the president or whatever. I really appreciate that. Thank you. This really has gotten home to me. Thank you. Now, some of these other points we've talked about fear, anxiety, and stress, and that it, I guess is a good word. It degrades that self-awareness and intelligence. And if we confront and face whatever we're facing, it relaxes and brings us back to the front of the bell curve. Are those the only culprits, by the way, fear, anxiety, and stress? Is that what we, are the key things that we have to look out for that create this effect on us? Oh, I think in terms of words that describe fear, uh, the big three, besides fear itself, is anxiety and stress. But as I mentioned before, it could be anything from panic dread, horror, uh, totally freak out. You know, we've heard of panic attacks, and uh, there's all kinds of anxiety disorders like attention deficit disorder, ADD, ADHD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, phobias, but just words like apprehension or nervousness or worry or doubt or confusion. Anytime you don't know, you're going to feel some trepidation. There's another word, <laughs> consternation. We have, we have lots of words for it, but it's all fear. I'll tell you this, clinical psychologists will often distinguish between fear and anxiety and they'll say fear is a response to real danger and anxiety is a response to nonspecific confusion and uncertainty. But the reason, the reason I see it as all the same is that in either case, the more you know about it, 
the less you suffer from it. So even if there's a real danger, you come around the corner, uh, turn into an alley, and there is a mangy, rabid dog snarling at you, drooling in an attack mode with its ears up. That's a fear of real, clear and present danger. But even in a case like that, the fear is less about the danger than what you don't know about the danger, you see. So fear is, by any name, anxiety, stress, worry, doubt, nervousness, apprehension, is what we don't know, whether dangerous or not. If, uh, let's say I have uh, a poisonous snake and I'm holding it carefully right behind the head so it can't hurt me. And I try to intimidate a group of people with this snake by moving it toward their face, right? And trying to intimidate them with this snake. Each person is going to feel a different level of fear until I come to perhaps one person who knows snakes, who's raised snakes, who breeds snakes, who loves snakes and knows all about snakes. This poisonous snake is just as dangerous, but there'll be much less fear because they know and understand. So the antidote to fear, as I said earlier, Emerson wrote this, knowledge or understanding is the antidote to fear because fear is a feeling or a reaction to what we don't know, whether dangerous or not. So the key point here is the unknown. We've, we are afraid of something that we don't know, which is still a little weird because even we could be a little bit apprehensive about things that we do know, but still there's some sort of iota of unknown in it for us to be uneasy or anxious about. Yes, and that's primarily because at the center of everything we don't know is our individuality. We don't know ourselves. And nothing is more frightening to people than who am I. Notice all the admonitions about not judging other people, but we do it anyway. Why do we judge others? Why do we compare ourselves to others? Because it's a risk-free, it's perceived, this is not true, but it's perceived to be a risk-free way of understanding myself. Well, boy, is that person stupid. Boy, is that person ugly. Boy, is that person a failure. Boy, are they poor. Uh, they're rich, but I sure wouldn't want to be rich like that. The way they are, so ostentatious and proud. We're always comparing and competing, even if we try not to. because. What most people wish to avoid is a direct encounter with who am I? What makes me unique? I've got fingerprint evidence and DNA proof that I'm one of a kind. And yet 99% of people couldn't care less. In fact, they're terrified to know themselves, to understand themselves. Ostensibly, I think, Tony, it's because we're afraid all the critics, the, the people that have tried to humiliate us and make us feel inadequate, we're afraid to find out they may have a point, that we really are bad or stupid or wrong or 
they're not good enough or handsome enough or our concern with what other people think is overwhelming when in fact we should be concerned about our own self-esteem and self-image and and frankly, not even what we think of ourselves, but what we care about. This is an important point. And when I present this in a public setting, in speeches or classes, I often get a real strong response to this because people have never considered it. I think it's real important to consider that when it comes to self-awareness, we are not what we think of ourselves. We are what we care about. Michael, sometimes we're really good at something. There should be no fear. There's nothing we don't know. We've done this routine. Let's, let's just take a dance routine. We've done it a thousand times. We know it, it. We live it. We breathe it. We eat it. We sleep it. And yet it comes time to perform and we, we flop. So why sometimes is it, you know, some people just try, 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 and they should be so good. But sometimes it just seems to make things worse instead of better. Why and how does that happen? It's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question, Tony. Because what we're getting into now is the differences between the common sense of intelligence as a mental faculty and the emerging field of emotional intelligence. And because we don't know much about emotional intelligence, We rely excessively on the only thing we learned in school, which is mental intelligence. So if I love to dance and I've got this dance routine that you just described down pat, I will do well as long as I go with the flow and just feel it. But if I start to think about it, that's when I screw it up. There's a poem in my book about a centipede, and I can't repeat it by heart. I can only paraphrase it, but it's about a uh, some sort of ladybug, as I recall, that approaches a centipede and says, how do you move? You've got a hundred legs. How do you coordinate all of that? And the centipede never moved again. Oh. See, because Centipede never thought about, I got a hundred legs, how do I move? But as soon as he began to think about it, he was paralyzed. And so we call this paralysis by analysis, Tony, or more commonly, we just tend to overthink things. And part of knowing yourself is trusting yourself and allowing yourself to rely on your emotional intelligence. There's no wrong way to dance. So even if you have this routine down and you get out there and you step wrong, well, dance out of it. Dance through it. Put a smile on your face and turn it into something even more elegant, right? Stop judging yourself and go with the feeling. This is an emerging field. It's only about 25 years old now, emotional intelligence. But in business and elsewhere, sports, uh, universities, professional uh, sports teams, and 
and the biggest corporations in the world are now uh, including emotional intelligence in their uh, executive training and, and their employee trainings as well, because it's all about, uh, there's four parts to emotional intelligence, self-awareness, learning to identify and manage your emotional feelings, the second part. The third part is empathy. And the fourth is relationship management. Those are all a form of intelligence. When I think of intelligence, I don't usually think of those. This is this is quite something. Well, listen to your words. I don't think of those. Because it's emotional intelligence. It's not about thinking. It's about feeling. Mm. See? So the first two are intrapersonal. Self-awareness and managing your feelings. This is... Uh, assertiveness and impulse control, when to step forward, when to hold back. For example, working with the police at the Sheriff's Academy, I mentioned part of the, the way that class came down in a practical sense was, uh, you know, let's say you're having a problem at home. You and your spouse had an argument. Or you get a big tax bill that you thought was settled and you actually owe the IRS, a whole lot of money, or maybe the dog died. And you go to work and some poor guy rolls through a stop sign, gets a little upset with you as a law enforcement officer, and the next thing you know, you've tased him or hit him with a club or something out of an emotion that really had nothing to do with him talking back to you, much less rolling through the stop sign. It was just this misplaced anger and hostility that was operating at an unconscious level that really came out of the trauma at home. So misdirected anger. So expanding your self-awareness and learning to manage those feelings are the first two stages of emotional intelligence. That's intrapersonal. And then three and four, the empathy and the relationship management are leadership skills that are interpersonal. Now, I take what I've learned about myself through the way I feel and use that to empathize with somebody on my team or somebody that I'm supervising at work or a boss that I'm trying to please. I can empathize now because I understand myself. There's there's no way we can understand another person beyond the limits of what we recognize in ourselves. That's definitely opened up some doors for me in terms of intelligence. I've never thought of those, as I mentioned, as being intelligence. So it's given me a new new level here, a new vista of that. Very interesting stuff. And I definitely want to have a chat another time, I believe, on emotional intelligence and really understand this. I think I mean, it is a very big subject, and we're definitely going to have to have some time on that. Michael, what are you looking to accomplish in the next few years? Well, you know, I'm pretty much retired. I'm in my early 70s, and uh, I've moved from Los Angeles, having lived there most of my adult life, out into the desert, east of Palm Springs here, and it's quiet and peaceful, and 
I've got open desert behind me, and we're backed up against these beautiful pink mountains. And every sunrise and every sunset is absolutely gorgeous. And yet, uh, the first thing I think of in the morning, and the last thing I think of at night, is becoming more self-aware and helping other people to expand their awareness. Tony, we hear words like mindfulness now and living in the moment rather than wasting our lives with regrets about the past and fears of an anticipated future that hasn't even happened yet. And every moment we spend thinking about the past or the future is a moment that we're missing, that we lose forevermore. I tell a story in my book about going into the Starbucks on the Sunset Strip with my wife one day and in front of the bakery counter breaking down in a weak moment and buying one of their chocolate espresso brownies, even though I do better. And we got in the car and we went off down the Sunset Strip and we were looking at the people and the giant billboards and Next thing I know, I reach for the brownie and the package is empty. And uh, there was no dog in the car to blame. So I knew I must. <laughs> and I know my wife did, wouldn't have eaten it. She would have bought her own if she wanted it. She has better discipline than I do. So I knew I must have eaten the darn brownie and never even realized it. <laughs> thousand calories wasted, you know. <laughs> but that wasn't the end of it. Because what followed immediately on the heels of that was the idea of me being maybe 80 years old and ending up in some kind of nursing home someplace, realizing that my life was almost over and I forgot to pay attention. Realizing that my life was almost over and I wasn't there. I wasn't paying attention not only to the brownie, but to the sunrise, the sunset, uh, to the flowers, to the fragrance of the night-blooming jasmine, to um, quiet times, to read more poetry or to listen to more music or read more good books. And I understand the wonderful joy of accomplishment, of entrepreneurship, of creating a business and succeeding, of providing for the security of your family, of having a car that starts reliably when you push the button, and a home where the roof doesn't leak and a decent pair of clothes to jump into. But we have to ask ourselves, when is enough enough and what is appropriate and what is balance? And am I integrating my life in such a way that I have an opportunity to live it? It's not all about commerce. It's about looking deeply into your partner's eyes the way you did when you first met her or him and spending time with your pets and your kids and their kids and your parents and neighbors and friends and associates, quality time with the TV turned off 
talking about things that really matter, not just newspaper headlines and politics and conflict and and all of that. So as I get older, I'm more and more interested in addressing the quality, not the quantity, but the quality of my life and supporting other people who wish to do the same thing to balance an abundant and prosperous and successful life with a life of quality so that when you do turn 80 or 90 or or 100 years old, however long you may be able to make it, you won't ever think, gosh, I forgot to pay attention. I just love that. That is just so strong. I'm almost speechless from that. That is just, you've just zoned me in. We should be more grateful and be more mindful of what's important to us now because we have things. We're always striving for, I want this, I want this, I want more. But how about just being grateful for what you have? A roof over your head that doesn't leak, that's hair every day, you know, refrigerator full of food, a good family. There's things that sometimes, like that brownie, we somehow take for granted. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, the pressure of the high technology that we're dealing with, everybody on their phones. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, I bet you have the rapid rate at which people's ability to speak clearly is degrading. People are not reading They're not thinking critically. Conversation is becoming shallow and meaningless. Uh, The attention span of people is getting very foreshortened. And um, we're killing ourselves. We're just living lives that we're not present in. We're not aware of. That's why fearless intelligence and emotional intelligence are all about self-awareness. The subtitle of my book, Fearless Intelligence, is The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. And that's the secret of life. We are not what we think. Actually, we're not even our feelings as much as we are our awareness of our thoughts and our feelings. You can have a thought that you're not aware of, or you can make conscious, deliberate, purposeful decisions. You can have feelings that you don't understand, or you could take the time to expand your awareness and look for the meaning and significance of this complex set of feelings. We can behave reflexively. Everything is a reaction, knee-jerk, reflex, Or we can expand our awareness and do things purposefully and deliberately. And when it comes to perceiving the world around us, the same thing. We can just live in the world, but we're not really of it. We're not immersed in it. We're we're missing something. And we don't even know what we've lost. It's our soul. It's our essence. It's our love. It's our connection to other people and life itself. When was the last time you climbed a tree, Tony? 
You remember when we were kids, do we climb trees? Trees, when you live in the urban, in the city, is like trees. There's no trees here that you can climb. <laughs> you better go find one before it's too late. Uh, uh, climbing trees is cool because adults never look up. And you become, when you're a kid, you become invisible in the tree. Nobody knows you're up there because they're too busy. They don't look up. Uh, when was the last time you rode a bike or or flew a kite or rolled down a grassy hill or ran barefoot in the grass? Tony, we're, we're <laughs> we've got to rediscover the balance. Technology is wonderful. I love you know, my smartphone and my computer and the internet and all these cool gadgets. I love it. But it's not everything or nothing. It's we've got to integrate and balance our lives and awaken through emotional intelligence, fearless intelligence, and an integrated, balanced approach to living in the world. Well said. We are we're more than this. We're we're souls and we forget that we're souls created by a divine entity, God, the creator. That's we forget right. this sometimes and we just have to bring it back. And coming back to those roots opens up new vistas for us. Once again, we talked about fearless intelligence with Michael Benner. You can find him at michaelbenner.com, B-E-N-N-E-R, or you can go direct to fearlessintelligence.com and get the book. Highly recommended. It's going to change the way you do business. And as you probably got a little brief little glimpse of, it's going to change how you live your life, how you deal with people, how you interact. And you know what? You may just wind up enjoying life a whole lot more. Michael, thank you so much. This is great. We're going to have to get you back on because I want to talk about emotional intelligence another time. That would be wonderful, Tony. And, uh, you know, I think you have a very exceptional program. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, I have even heard in the past from directly from some of your listeners who said, I heard you on the Tony Durso show. And uh, so anytime, I'd be thrilled and honored to be back on the show. Thank you so very much. Again, the honor's mine. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> 